You're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Well, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 3. And again, I'd like to just start with uh, reading through <clears throat> this section that we've been in, uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, down to verse 21. And uh, I want to look again at verse 17 uh, with you this morning, uh, but want to read the whole section. So uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is, derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Uh, look, back, look back at verse, uh, verse 17. Uh, we started this last time, but Paul says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love. Uh, last time we were looking at that idea that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. And again, the whole emphasis of that idea is that Jesus is to be preeminent in your life, as Colossians 1.18 would say. Uh, that Jesus is to be the big deal, that he's to be the throb of your heart, that he is to be the, uh, the, the centrality of, of your life, uh, that, uh, that he is the North Star that we fix our compass to, that he is the supreme focus of our, of our existence. And so is, uh, or maybe I'll say it this way, uh, when someone looks at your life, is the explanation for your life and how you are living Jesus. In other words, if they could get inside your mind and see how you think, uh, if they listen to how you talk, if they could somehow cut you open, would you just ooze forth the reality in the life of Jesus? Uh, that's what Paul's really getting to. And uh, I, I already mentioned this to all the students, but uh, isn't it a phenomenal thought? And it goes back to the, uh, the John 16 passage, where in uh, John 16, verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage. Doesn't this sound familiar? It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And I, I just, this is such a mind-boggling reality that Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room, it is actually a good thing that I leave. And again, if I was there, I'd been like, Mm-mm, no, 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 no. Jesus, I know your truth, but you're wrong. <laughs> you know? Jesus, it is not to my advantage that you leave. Why? Because I want you here. He says, no, you don't understand. If I leave, then I can send my spirit to you, and that is better than if I'm here, which still makes no sense to me. Because if the physical, literal Jesus was right here, I would say that would be better. Nobody else is agreeing with me. I would think that's better. But Jesus says that's actually your disadvantage. Why? Because if he's here physically, he's limited to one spot. And because I'm his favorite, obviously he's going to hang out with me. I think I can prove that biblically. 
Which means if you're going to hang out with Jesus, then you're going to hang out with me and Jesus. And you don't want to hang out with me, obviously. So uh, you're going to be like, well, this is not to my advantage. Uh, I know. So Jesus says, look, if, if I'm here with you physically, yeah, that's phenomenal, disciples. And it's great that I'm, I'm here in your midst. But it's actually better if I leave because I, if I leave, I'll send my spirit and I can fill each of you. And again, the crazy thought that I've been, I've been pondering this for years and I still don't know how to, I don't know how to wrestle through this because it is so mind-boggling to me. But according to Jesus, what we have as believers in this, in this day and age is better, according to Jesus, than what the disciples had prior to Pentecost. That as the disciples are walking around town with Jesus and slapping them on the back and eating hot dogs around the campfire, it would have been fish, I know. But, you know, hey, they're, they're sitting around the fire thing. Jesus says, yeah, as great as that is, it's actually better that it come in and dwell you. And yet how often do we as, as Christians look back and say, wow, I would have loved to have been like the old guys. You know, the Moses and the Daniels and the Esthers and the whatever. And yet they are the ones who are, who are craving the thing that we have access to, which is what? Christ dwelling within our lives through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That they would have longed to live in the, the day and age in which we live, that we have access to. And so you are not at a disadvantage. If anything, you have all the advantage because all that you need for life and godliness is found in him. So what more do you need? So, hey, we live in a great day. And it does not matter what culture is doing. It does not matter what the political system is. It does not matter the economics. The reality is you have the living and dwelling God beating inside of your life. And according to Jesus, that is phenomenal. Wouldn't it be amazing if we lived in, in that reality? Now, Paul goes on in verse 17, and he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts and all of that, the Christ will in your hearts, that Christ would be center, that he'd be the big deal of your life, all of that is through faith. Through faith. Which is what I want to talk about this morning. Uh, we, we talk about faith around here all the time. And, and again, some of this is going to be a review for you. <clears throat> but do you realize how critical, how essential, how fundamental, how just right down to it necessary Faith is for your life. Faith is not an addition to your Christianity. Faith is the foundation of the whole thing. You cannot be a Christian without faith. In fact, uh, we are called believers. We are the faithers, if you want to change faith into a verb, right? We, we do the action of faith. We believe. And again, and this is all old, old hat for all of you, but, <clears throat> but the word faith in the Greek is pistis, and the word believe is pistuyo. It's the same root. One is the noun, faith. One is an action, believe. So when I have faith and I'm doing faith, I'm living a life of faith, practically the action of faith is believing. And when I do the action of believing and I'm practically believing, then we say, oh, that person has faith. Now, it's a little weird in the English because they, they look like two entirely different words, but in the Greek, they are tied in, they are connected, it's the same idea. So you can't say, well, I, I, I have faith, but I don't believe. That's impossible. You can't say, well, I'll believe, but I have no faith. That's impossible because it's the same idea. Everyone tracking? 
Now, this tickled me. Uh, I was looking up the word faith and the word belief, the, the uh, pistis and bestudio words. And it's interesting that pistis in the New Testament shows up 243 times. I mean, this thing's all over the, the place. Faith, 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 faith. Faith, faith, faith. Uh, and it shows up 59 times in the Old Testament. And of, of all the New Testament books, the, the books that are most concentrated with the idea of faith is Romans and Hebrews, which should make sense because, boy, they're just going crazy on the idea of faith. Now, the word pistuio, in different word, same root, different word, that word shows up also 243 times in the New Testament. That just tickled me. I was like, that's so cool. And I had to look at it multiple times. And I'm like, they're not counting them the same word. I mean, uh, two different words. Same amount of times. I just think that's awesome. And pastuyo shows up 81 times in, in the Old Testament. But get this. The book of John, not once does he use the word pistis, faith. Isn't that interesting? But John goes berserk on the word believe. In fact, John uses that word pastuyo, faith, or sorry, believe, I think it's 98 times. So of the 243 times in the New Testament, John uses it 100 times. In other words, what's the whole book of John about? In fact, John tells you what his book is about. He says, I'm writing this that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. Uh, that word believe, uh, especially the way that John uses it in the book of John, uh, and I, I've given this illustration so many times, but we often think of it as like a mental understanding. It's a mental apprehension thing. That's not belief, biblically. And so here's my illustration. love this illustration. Uh, we get up on an airplane, and we're flying, and I go, there's an incredible view. You should look at this view. So I open the side door, because you get a better view of it. Little windows is not enough view space, you know, you can only see so much. So we open up the side door, and I'm like, look at this view. Isn't this amazing? And as you're looking, I come up behind you, and I just go, Poof. <laughs> and then here you are. And I realize, hmm, you probably need a parachute. So I go, and I grab a parachute, and I throw it down to you. Here you go. <laughs> now, here you are. Here's a parachute. And I scream out the side of the plane, do you believe in the parachute? Now, if all you do is you look up and go, yes, it's right there. I believe in it. That's not going to help you. Why? <laughs> right? So you've got to recognize that when we're talking belief, we're not talking mental ascent. We're not, the demons have mental ascent. But they are not, that, that's not this word. That's not this idea. Hey, they, they know Scripture. I mean, Satan used Scripture with Jesus. So obviously they know Scripture. They're not dumb. But we're not talking mental, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, I do believe he was a great man back in the day. We're not talking about that at all. Because that does not save you. So what is, what is believe in, in the Scriptures? Believing is you see the parachute, and you somehow make your way over to that parachute, I don't know how you do it in the air, but you make your way over to the parachute, you grab that parachute, you put that thing on, and you hold on to that thing for dear life. Why? Because this is your sole means of salvation. 
Because without that parachute, you are kersplatting. <laughs> Does that make sense? <clears throat> so, hey, you're going to believe, but what does believe mean? It means you're actually going to put on and then hold tight with everything you have because this is your sole means of salvation. That's what it means to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That what, that's what it means to believe in Jesus. It does not mean do you believe a checklist. It does not mean do you have a mental understanding of Jesus. The idea of believing is have you actually put on Jesus and then are you holding on to him for dear life because he is, he is my only means of salvation. That's how John uses the idea. <clears throat> so think about this. As, as we come into our passage then, Paul is saying that Christ is to dwell in your hearts through faith. That the reality of this thing is that Christ is to be central in my life. That, that my whole life and my, the tone of my being is to be set on Jesus Christ. That if you were to somehow cut me down the middle, Jesus would just ooze forth. Why? Because he's the essence of my life, that he's the centrality of my life. And how, how does that take place? How does Jesus dwell in my heart? And again, we're not talking about your blood pumping muscle. I was corrected. Someone sent me a Marco Polo the other day and said, Aaron said, Nathan, I just want to remind you, a heart is not an organ. It's a muscle. So I apologize to all the doctors and nurses and people who actually know these things, because uh, obviously I don't. So I repent, it's not an organ, apparently. It's a muscle. But regardless, what does it, we're not talking about your blood pumping muscle. It sounds so weird. Uh, your blood, blood pumping thing, right? God's not just sitting watch, in your left ventricle watching blood go through, right? We're talking about the centrality of your life, right? Your heart, your mind, your will, your emotions, that's what encompasses your heart, at least in, at least in the context. So how does that take place? How is Jesus going to be smack dab center of your life? By faith. It is literally through faith, not just mental ascent. We're not talking, whoa, Jesus is here. We're not talking about that. What we're saying is, hey, I am literally going to stand in a position of belief and live in faith. So it goes back to the question then, well, then what is faith? In other words, if, if we were to believe and we're to stand in faith, why? Because Christ is to be center of our life. What does that mean practically? I mean, haven't you ever read that great verse, Hebrews 11, 11 and 1? Let me read it. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I remember reading that going, what? What does that even mean? Let me read it again. Now faith, this position of believing, trusting, is the assurance, it's the confidence of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now, obviously, you didn't get it because you're still looking at me like, mm-hmm, I have no idea what you just read. It's Scripture. Amen. Do you realize that when we're looking at this idea of faith, faith is not seen through the human gaze. Faith is looking in a spiritual sense, it's, it's looking through the eyes of the soul to a heavenly reality. Uh, it's, it's looking and seeing the reality of Jesus and then coming into alignment and agreement and loyalty, loyalty and support and surrender to that reality and saying, that's right. That I may not see it around me, 
But that is true. See, faith is, is not turning within ourselves or turning and looking at the natural evidence around us. What is faith? See, faith is turning my spiritual gaze upon Jesus saying, all right, I trust you. I got it. I understand that. Oh, a great definition I heard of faith once was it is invoking the activity of a second party. And what that means is here I am, the first party, and I realize, okay, I don't have it within myself. I don't have it in my pockets. I don't have it in my resource. I don't have it in my wisdom. So I turn my life to the second party, who's always Jesus. And I turn my gaze upon Jesus, and I say, Jesus, I can't, but you can. So would you come, and would you get smack dab in the middle of this, and I'm going to surrender this thing to you. I need you. And by faith, in trust, I'm going to ask for his activity, his, his interaction, his movement in this, whatever this may be. Kind of like that. Uh, the Hebrew passage, again, <clears throat> faith, right? This idea of trust or belief, if, if I can maybe give an amplified version of this, is a spiritual assurance. It is a spiritual confidence of things that you may not see physically. And we walked, we walked through this in uh, chapter 3, verse 10. So when we're going through the whole study of looking at this manifold wisdom of God thing, if you'll remember, we, we was going to this idea that, that there's this natural physical realm, and regardless of what's happening in the physical, natural realm around us, we are not merely to live here, down here in the physical, though we do live down here, right? Pinch your neighbor, ah, right there. I mean, you live down here, but the reality is, is you don't just live here. You live in a spiritual realm with a spiritual perspective and a spiritual mind, and I'm seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what would happen then if I began to see my world, not merely from down here, what if I would see my world from up here and I would gain God's perspective on this thing? Does that make sense? And I'm taking this reality and I'm putting my hope and my trust, not in the physical that I can see around me. I'm putting my hope and my trust in the spiritual reality that I cannot see, but I know is real. It's faith. It's, I'm, I'm down here looking at my circumstance saying, I can't do this. So I look heavenward and I say, God, but you can do this. So I'm putting my trust in you up here. And I'm asking that you up here would get involved down here. And I'm bringing this reality down to here. And Paul, again, in chapter 3, verse 10, says that as the body of Christ, the church, we are to demonstrate, we are to make known that reality to the physical and the spiritual that we are declarations of faith to our world, that we are believers, that when the world looks at us, they go, whoa, look at all that faith. Look at that believing. When, when the spiritual realm and the angelic and the demonic look at your life, they should go, look, they're believers. Why? Because they're putting their hope and their trust in God. Do you live this way? So, so listen again to Hebrews 11.1. 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hebrews 11 1 says, Now faith, this idea of belief and trust, is the assurance, right? It's a spiritual assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction spiritually of things not seen. Do you have that? Because we are told in Hebrews eleven six 6 that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So this is not an optional thing in your life. If you desire to please God, you have to have faith. 
oh, so I will, I will be a believer. Oh, I believe. No, we're talking practically. You're living down here. What if you would live from this reality up here? And what if every moment of every single day, you were not turning within, you were not looking at your resource, you weren't coming out of your own intellect, you weren't coming out of your own strength, you were constantly saying, Lord, I need you. Lord, I depend on you. Lord, I'm, I'm asking for your activity in my life. Lord, I, I, I need you in this moment. And folks, we do. Because, hey, on this day, hey, you're going to face temptations. On this day, you're going to have struggles. On this day, you're going to open up your bank account and look at it and go, oh, no. Hey, on this day, you know, you might get that call from family and you're going to have that one issue. Or, hey, you're going to have issues in your life today. Congratulations. That's the reality of life. So what would happen then in the middle of whatever your circumstances may be? You know, don't turn on the news. But if you turn on the news, suddenly you have a lot of, oh, no, going on. And we don't have to give illustrations. You can just imagine. Why? Because that's what the news is all about. We're looking at the economy and the politics and all the craziness of all that's happening. So rather than looking at that and determining life from that perspective, what if I would constantly see all of this through his gaze? What if I would gain a heavenly perspective? And what if I'd put my hope and my trust in him? So without faith, the writer of Hebrews says in in chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And you begin to recognize that if I'm going to put my trust and my hope and my faith, my belief in him, that demands that I know his character. In other words, how, how am I going to trust him? How am I going to believe in him if I don't know him? I will never be able to put my hope and my trust in him unless I know his character. So when you look at Hebrews eleven six, 6, then, there are these two realities that are taking place. One, faith demands action. Faith is not some abstract concept. Faith is what we call the reality of you doing this action called believing. That when you're putting your active trust in God, that's a life of faith. It's not mental assent. It's a practical, I'm putting my... The action of my life is putting my belief, my trust, moment by moment by moment in Jesus. But the other thing this demands is that you have an object of faith, which should be Jesus if we're a believer. And we, and we all have an object of faith. For most people, the object of faith, that which they put their trust and their hope and their belief in, is themselves. It's their experience. It's their past. It's their whatever. But it's me. And as a Christian, I am not to put my trust and my hope in me. You've already proven that you are not trustworthy. Your experience has already proven that it does not help you. Hasn't it? Because your, your, your past and your experience says, hey, I'm, I'm always going to be a victim to sin. Uh, your past and experience says, oh, well, that one person hurt me, and so I need to become a victim and live in this funk uh, of, of just this foggy funk Ugh, kind of life. Why? Because that's what my past tells me. Uh, that I've had these issues in my past and that should affect how I live now. See, what if I did not listen and consult my past? What if I didn't consult my emotions? What if I didn't consult all that stuff behind me? And what if I says, Lord, I'm going to put my faith, my trust in you alone. And by the way, if you began to do this, do you know what we'd have to call you? We'd probably have to call you a Christian, wouldn't we? 
Why? Because you're not turning within. You're not looking at your past. You're not consulting your emotions. You're saying, Lord, and again, not that emotions are bad, not that your past is evil, but that's not what I, that's not what I reason from. What do I reason from? Truth. I put my faith in his word. I put my faith in his, in his person, his character, and he is faithful so I can trust him. Uh, there's that great verse in Habakkuk, uh, chapter two, verse four, uh, that shows up over and over in the New Testament. And the phrase that Habakkuk uses in that prophecy is the righteous will live by faith. So, hey, if you're going to walk in righteousness and holiness and truth, you've got to live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4. And then again, this starts showing up all over the place. Like Hebrews chapter 10, it shows up in Romans. It starts showing up that, hey, that as a believer, we are called to live by faith. And again, it's impossible to please him without faith. We are called to be believers. Everyone awake? <clears throat> so that being said, let me give you, um, I, I was trying to wrestle with this idea of faith and I decided, okay, maybe to help, uh, Eric years ago gave a message called the, uh, anatomy of faith and kind of, he kind of talks through, he eventually became the two trees, uh, where he, he talks through doubt and faith. And you guys have heard all this, <clears throat> but in, in the original message, he talks about six key principles of faith. And I was, I was just, I was looking at him. I was just like, those are good. And so I just wanted to read you his six principles. And uh, for the sake of helpful light, we'll have them on the screen here. So six basic principles of faith. Number one, get this. The laws of heaven trump the laws of this earth and the world. The laws of nature are subservient to the laws of the spirit of God. And again, if you want an illustration of this, it's like gravity, Right. There is a law of gravity, but there is a higher law. What's the higher law? Aerodynamics. So I can actually over, uh, go above the law of gravity as long as I'm in an airplane and I'm living by the law of aerodynamics. So when it comes to this idea of faith, we have to realize that there is a, there is a natural law, a, a, a reality of, of earth. And yet the reality of heaven, the law of heaven trumps the law of earth, that's phenomenal. Which I think is probably why Jesus in the Lord's prayer is talking about the fact that, hey, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is up here. Why? Because this thing trumps this whole thing. Uh, number two, another basic principle of faith is spiritual assurance is gained only through spiritual means. So if you're going to walk in spiritual confidence and assurance, right? That Hebrews 11, one idea, then you cannot do that through physical. It has to be spiritual. For example, prayer, obedience, patience, patient endurance, purity of soul. And there's, you, this is a spiritual thing that has to be developed in your life. You need to spend time in the prayer closet. You need to spend time in the word. You need to spend time getting to know Jesus. You need to spend time walking in obedience. You need that sanctification of soul where he's purifying you. And if you don't have that, how are you ever going to grow that spiritual muscle that allows you to have assurance, confidence, because it's not something that's just merely given. It's something that is cultivated the more time you spend in the presence of God. Uh, number three, faith is based on fact. It's what we call truth. 
and it's not upon wishful or positive thinking. Uh, it is a very real glimpse into the plans, the purposes, and the power of the Almighty, and being convinced of both his desire and his ability to carry out those plans and purposes. In other words, <clears throat> my faith is not just in whatever. My faith is not just in some uh, hypothetical dream and vision. My faith is built upon a solid rock. It's the character, the nature of God, and his words. He has promised he cannot lie. <clears throat> uh, number, number four, for faith to grow, it must be fully invested. You cannot be half in. Hey, this has to be an all-in kind of a thing. Number five, faith, if it is real, is always tested to prove its authenticity. Is it an interesting? Uh, here's here's uh, Abraham in Genesis 21. He finally, in, in a whole fresh way, realizes that God is El Olam. And suddenly chapter 22 starts, and it's like the Lord says, all right, Abraham, I'm going to test that faith. Faith always needs a test. Faith needs a reality to walk through where it is put into practice. Uh, just like uh, if you're going to start, say, say you're going to play baseball. You realize that you don't start playing baseball. This illustration is probably going to break down. But you don't start playing baseball by suddenly starting in the minor leagues. What do you do? You start throwing a baseball and then you start having hitting practice and you start, you have to grow the ability of playing baseball or whatever you want to, soccer, badminton, whatever, right? So you may you, you realize that when it comes to faith, faith can grow, but it needs training. Well, it needs testing. It needs trials. You, you need those situations in your life where it's utterly impossible and you're literally being forced to trust in your God. We need those in our life. Well, I'm a believer. Well, have you had any testing on that? No, but I'm sure deep down I really am. That's not going to work. So faith, if it is real, needs testing. And we don't like the testing, but you need the testing because that proves your faith. That grows your faith. Uh, and then number six, <clears throat> faith, if it is real, remains steadfast and unshaken even when the natural realm lays out its arguments and presents its case of the utter impossibility of the task. In other words, <clears throat> when all the natural realm around you is screaming, this is impossible, faith says, I'm not listening to you. Just watch what God's going to do. I'm putting my trust in him. So a couple of class classic illustrations. Uh, you have this man who's 100 years old. And men that are 100 years old with wives who are 90 years old typically don't have kids. Typically. And if they've never been able to have kids, obviously they, their hope has run out. But God has promised, hey, through you, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the sand on the, on, the, you know, on the beach and as numerous as the skies in the sky. Stars in the sky. That would be powerful. And so what does Abraham do? Abraham believed. And he says, okay, I understand that the natural realm down here, this is utterly impossible, but God, I'm not going to see it through the natural realm. I'm going to believe your word, and I'm going to put my hope and my faith and my trust in you. That's faith, folks. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, "Woo! you want a good example of faith? Look at Abraham. Ah, uh, you have Moses in the Red Sea. Do you know how utterly impossible this was? 
And of course, we know the stories. We're like, yeah, that's not that difficult. Are you kidding? Here is, you know, between one and two million Israelites with all their flocks and, you know, herds and all that kind of stuff. And they're literally in this little, little precipice on the Red Sea, mountains on two sides, an army, the Egyptian army, the biggest, strongest army of the world coming up behind them. And there's this massive body of water in front of them. This is impossible. And yet Moses said, I trust my God. So why, why, would, I be, why would I be concerned? Why, why would I be nervous? Why, why, would I, why would I sit there and go, well, I, I don't know how he's going to do this. In fact, I, I love what uh, Josephus says. Josephus, that uh, Jewish historian, said that Moses at the Red Sea and I, I forgot the actual quote, but it's something like, it would be more than, more than madness or it would be folly for us to despair in the providence of God at this time. And supposedly, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, the idea was is that Moses had such a confidence that either God was going to pick them up and carry them across the sea and let them down, like fly them over the Red Sea. Or he was going to smash the mountains on both sides so they can have a way, way of an escape. Or the waters are just going to open and they can walk through it. And one of those happened. But Moses had such a confidence and a belief in his God that he goes, God has not brought us this far to, to cause us to fail now. That's faith. Uh, you have Joshua in the battle of Jericho. And the writer of Hebrews says, do you know what that whole battle was focused on? Faith. Why? Because you do not walk around a city for seven days, scream, and walls fall down. How did the walls fall down? Faith. They trusted in their God. Uh, Gideon facing this massive Midian army. And God goes, <clears throat> you have too many people. Uh, God, we actually don't have enough people. We're already outnumbered. I know. Shrink it down. Actually, you still have too many people. Shrink that down. Now we have 300 people going against this massive army. All right, how are we going to win? We're going to have to put our trust in our God that he is going to fight the battle for us. What is it? That's faith. It's an active trust in the nature, the character, the word of our God. Uh, you have Elisha surrounded by an entire Syrian army. His servant runs in, Master, alas, what are we going to do? And Elisha's like, no big deal. Excuse me, it is a big deal. Well, why is Elisha not concerned? Because though he's surrounded physically in this impossible situation by an entire Syrian army, he is seen from a spiritual perspective and he has seen horses and chariots all around him. What is it? It's faith. It's, it's a trust. It's an active trust in his God. Now, you have the great story of Mary of Bethany. And here's Mary of Bethany and Jesus comes into the room, right, having dinner with the disciples. And Mary takes her spikenard. And again, and we walked through this, but the, there's that word in the Greek right before the word spikenard, which is the word faith. Pistikos. Pistikos nardos is the Greek. That she had this pound of, of nard, this, you know, spikenard, but it was precious. It was her object of faith. And so what does she do? She took that which was her object of faith, broke it upon the feet of Jesus, uh, John 12, 3 says that the, the fragrance filled the entire room where they were sitting, sitting. And she was exchanging her object of faith from this 
spikenard, which was worth you know, a year's wages, and she's saying, Lord, I'm no, no longer have my object of faith here. I'm putting my object of faith in you. So I'm going to dash this upon your feet and just extravagantly pour it out. I start getting into Christian history, and there's example after example after example of impossible situations, and everyone is surrounded, and everyone's about to die, and God always comes through. Why? Because they put their hope and their faith and their trust in him. See, we're not talking some abstract, ooh, would you, would you live by faith? What does that mean? I don't know. But hey, have faith. What we're talking about is, do you have an active trust, an active belief, a constancy of hope in him? I, I don't care about the situation around me. I'm putting my hope in him. I don't care what the political system looks like. My trust is in him. I, I don't care who is the president. I, I do care who's president. But it doesn't matter who's president. Why? Because my hope is in him the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, what about vaccine mandates? I don't care. Why? Because my hope is in him. I trust him. Well, have you seen the political system? What about the dollars? about the crash? I mean, what about... I know. But why are you concerned down here? Well, it's impossible. We're not going to make it. Yes, we will. Here's Elijah running into the desert. He has no food. How's he going to make it? I don't know. God's gonna, I'll, I'll trust God. And ravens. Ravens brought him food. Sounds gross, personally, but that it's possible. Hey, here we are. We're, we're in the desert. There is no food. There is no water. How are we going to survive? The Lord will provide the manna. Water will come from rock. Shoes won't wear out. Sorry, ladies. I mean, hey, your clothes, you won't have to replace them. Can we trust our God? But you don't know my situation in life. I don't, I don't need to know your situation in life because I know my God. You getting this? Now, in, the, in that great chapter, Hebrews 11, talking about faith and all the examples of faith, listen to how the writer of Hebrews closes up the argument about faith. Listen, let me just listen to this. This is what the writer of Hebrews says the people of old were able to do by faith. Uh, this is Hebrews 11, uh, verse 32 through 40. He says, what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who, listen to this, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting the release, so that they might uh, obtain a better resurrection. And others experiencing mock mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in the deserts and the mountains and the caves and the holes in the ground. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Yeah, there were trials. Yeah, there were struggles. Yes, there were issues. But do you realize that it was through faith that kingdoms were conquered? There were acts of righteousnesses performed. There were promises that were obtained. Mouths of lions were shut. How, how did all that stuff take place? Faith. 
How did uh, Rackshack and Benny, when they went into the fiery furnace, if you saw that version, it, how are they able not to be scorched? Faith. And you realize their faith wasn't that God would bring salvation and not harm. Their faith was in God and said, God, we trust you, whatever you want to do. It's that Job passage, Lord, even if you slay me, I will still hope in you. Job 13, 15. But Lord, I, this is not about my comfort. This is not about what I get out of it. Lord, I put my trust in you. And if you want to use this life and spill this life for the king and for the kingdom, then I trust you. You, you look at Jim Elliott and Nate Saints and, and the other guys down right in Ecuador, and, and here they are. They, they're, they're pouring their lives out. And the first day they're on the beach, with the Indians, they're killed. And you're like, hmm, that doesn't seem like it was very profitable. But their hope and their trust was in their God. That God, even if, even if we are slain, even if we are killed, we trust that you are doing something. And it was because of how they died that warmed the heart of the Indians to the gospel. And though they did not see the promise, though they did not see that which they put their trust in, their hope in, just like Abraham did not see the reality of all the descendants, Yet he lived by faith. So again, this is not about you. This is all about Jesus. But what would it look like to put an active trust and hope in him? That Lord, even if you slay me, I'm still going to put my trust in you. Why? Because you are worthy to be trusted. And yes, I, I may have all that stuff that the writer of Hebrews says at the very bottom. I could be stoned, sawn in two, sawn in two, uh, put put to death by the sword. I, I could be ripped apart. But Lord, even then, I'm going to put my trust in you because this is not about what the world can do to me. This is all about you. So again, Lord, I, I trust you. And if you can use my life for your kingdom, so be it. If you want to spill my life for your kingdom, so be it. Oh, got to hurry. Uh, listen to what R.A. Torrey said about this. He said, uh, R.A. Torrey, by the way, is the guy who followed up uh, D.L. Moody at the Moody Church and uh, Moody School in Chicago. Uh, but R.A. Torrey said this, to believe God is to re rely upon or have unhesitating assurance of the truth of God's testimony, even though it is unsupported by any other evidence, and to rely upon or have unfaltering assurance of the fulfillment of his promises, even though everything seen, seen seems against fulfillment. In other words, believing, as he says, is taking God at his word. What if we did that? What if we actually were believers in this generation? Not believers in name, but we are the ones who put Christ first in our life through faith. So practically, what can you do? Uh, there's this old song. Love this old song. The whole emphasis of the song says it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Do you, do you realize that the key to this whole thing is a focus on Jesus? you got to know your God. And the more you spend time getting to know God through his word, the more you spend time getting to know God through his, spending time in his presence, hey, the more time you spend time on your knees, just, just spending time with him, do you realize it bolsters up the spiritual assurance and confidence in your life where you can say, I know my God, I will put my trust in him. You want to grow in faith? Get to, get to know your God.
Uh, it's really interesting when you look at this idea of slaves and sheep. Uh, Dan McConaughey some years ago mentioned this, and this was so profound in my life. He said, in the Roman world, uh, in, in, in the day and age in which Paul was writing, because Paul kept saying, I am a slave of Christ. I am a slave of Christ. And of course, that's rather offensive in our modern day. But we don't understand what he's actually getting at. Uh, so we, 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 we translate it bondservant. Ooh, we're a bondservant. I'm a servant of Christ. The word he actually uses is slave. It's like a galley slave, right? I'm down in the galley of a boat. I, I have no rights. I have no opinions. I can't determine when I wake up, when I go to bed. I'm, I'm just told what to do, and I do it. Why? For the pleasure of the master. Now, we know in the old days, right, in the Old Testament, uh, if, <clears throat> if I sold myself into slavery, and at the end of my release, because of the love that I had for my master, because my master was so good, then I could, I could look at my good master and say, Master, I, I'm willing to be your slave for life. And I'm willing to come under your authority. And of course, what they do is they take your ear to the doorpost and they take an awl, like a little tent peg thing, and just poof, and jam it into your ear and give you a, what we would probably call today a gauged ear. And the idea was, is that from this point forward, that this ear only belongs to one voice, my master. That, that I'm surrendering my rights and I have the ear of my master. So regardless, regardless of what's going on, it doesn't matter who yells in my face, I'm listening to one voice, my master. Did you know that the term that is referred to a Christian more than any other term in the New Testament, more than son, more than believer, in the sense that you're called a, you know, like a believer, a Christian, the term that's used more is this idea of Lord and, ma uh, Lord and servant or slave. That that idea of that I am a slave of Christ, that he is the Lord and I am his servant, is used more to, to refer to you than any other term. And it's true. Jesus says, I, do, I no longer call you servants, I call you sons. That is true. We are, we are heirs of the kingdom. But Paul says, oh, I am a slave of Christ. What is he getting at? He's getting at the fact that, do you know how good our master is? That we are, as he says in Romans 6, we are subservient to something. We will yield to someone. We will either yield to the flesh or we will yield unto our Lord and our master. And it's interesting what Dan had pointed out to me was he said in the Roman culture of which Paul is writing, he says, did you know legally, uh, masters legally had to provide three things for their slaves or it meant the death of the master. So even the worst, horrible, no good, rotten masters had to at least give three things to their slaves. One was protection, one was provision, and one was direction. So I had to protect my slaves. I had to provide for my slaves. I give, you know, uh, food and clothing and housing. And I had to give direction. You go over here. I want you to do this. Those three things were guaranteed. Do you recognize that we do not have a bad master? We have a great master. We have such a good master that we should be willing to say, take these ears and jam holes in them. And I will have, I will have an ear for one voice, yours. Why? He's good. So even if bad masters are guaranteed to give those three things, how much more a good master will give those three things? And so when Dan told me, I, I was doing a study in, in John chapter 10 at the time, looking at this idea of 
the good shepherd, that the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. And there's a whole profound study and all that. But as I was looking at this idea of the sheep and the shepherd, I went, isn't that fascinating? That the same three things that a master always gives a slave is the three things that a shepherd always gives his sheep. What does a shepherd give his sheep? Protection, provision, direction. And we don't even have a bad shepherd. We have a great shepherd. Isn't it fascinating that if you look at your prayer life, my guess is your prayer life probably centers around three things. Protection, provision, direction. Lord, help me, help me, protect me. Lord, I really need resource. Lord, I need provision. Lord, I really need... Lord, what's the will of your... What's the direction for my life? Where am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? Could you give me some direction? Could you give me some clarity for life? Could you just... Isn't it interesting that we pray for those three things all the time? And yet, even bad masters are supposed to give those. Which means, can we not trust our God as a good master, as, as, as the Lord? And that is what the word Lord means, you, you realize, means master. So as his servants, as his, as his slaves, as we come in subjection and surrender to him, shouldn't we just trust that he's going to give protection, provision, direction to us? As his sheep, don't you think a great shepherd is going to give us protection, provision, direction? And I'm not saying don't pray for those things, but why are we so anxious about those three things when we can just say, Lord, you, are, you will give those to me? See, wouldn't it be amazing if, if we had an ear for his voice? And the more we got to know the voice of our shepherd, the more we got to know our Lord, we can actually rest in him. You need to begin, you need to, begin to realize that you will put your faith in something. So practically, what would it look like if we would turn our gaze upon him? What, what would it mean if we actually got to know him and spent time with him and, and just enriched our relationship with him so that we would put our trust in him? The more I get to know someone, the more I'm willing to trust them. And the same thing's true about our God. If you don't know him, you will not trust him. So what if you would spend time with him? What if you would get to know him? What if you would turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and allow the things of this earth, regardless how impossible they may seem, to fade in light of his glory and grace? We are believers. What would it look like if we did that in this generation? What if we had a group of men and women in this culture who were not looking at the culture, who were not listening to the noise, who, who were not being swayed by the, by the nonsense, and rather says, I am putting my faith in the Lord my God. I am putting my hope and trust in his word. And if he said it, I believe it. And even if the world has never seen it before, if the word says it, I'm in. If the word said it, I'm holding him to it. And so, Lord, if I'm the first person ever in human history to demonstrate the reality of this word, I'm in. Would you be willing to say that? And could Christ dwell in your hearts, the very center of your life, through faith? And what would it look like if you were known as a Christian, one who was a believer in this generation?
Lord, you are trustworthy. You who promised are faithful. So Lord, what would it look like if I was to turn my gaze and keep it steadfast upon you? That I I would be willing to give my ear over to one voice. That somehow I'd turn my gaze upon you and and somehow it's in in the midst of seeing you and knowing you that it would become the bedrock for my soul. Lord, could, could I get into your word, not just for information, but to know you, the living God? Lord, could I get into your word? And, and as I got into your word, I just began to have a, 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 a strengthening of my faith, that there'd be a greater spiritual confidence and assurance, because I know that if you have promised, you are faithful, that if you have promised and you cannot lie, it will come to pass. Lord, what would it look like for me not to listen to the noise around me and not listen to the the worldly stuff and all the stuff in the earth and the Syrian armies and the flat tires and being surrounded by whatever. What would it look like if I had an, an eternal perspective that I was living in light of eternity, that I was seeing from your gaze, that I was invoking your activity in, in the moment-by-moment reality of my life, that, that I wasn't just turning within and trying to put my hope and my trust in myself, that I'm not Uh, seeking the counsel of my experience or my emotions, but rather, Lord, I was turning my gaze upon you and saying, Lord, I trust you. And it's not just a concept. It's not just some hope or a dream, but I'm putting my active, practical, hope, trust, belief in you. Lord, I want to be a believer. I don't want to say that I'm a believer and not believe. I want to believe. And Lord, if there are red seas in front of me, I want to trust your nature. And Lord, if there's an entire Midian army and you want to bring down our strength so we have what seems like incredible weakness, Lord, I want to still put my faith and my trust in you. Lord, regardless of where this culture goes, regardless where the political system ends up, regardless of our economy, regardless of who is president, regardless of the vaccine, regardless of COVID, regardless of whatever may be swirling on around us, Could we in this generation, oh Lord, may we be believers. And Lord, your promise is if we had faith even the size of a mustard seed, that if our trust and our belief was just a tiny dot, that alone would be enough to move a mountain. Lord, I want more than a mustard seed faith. Lord, that's going to require that I get to know you Lord, that's going to require that you're going to have to put this thing to the test. And just as you proved David with a lion and a bear before he got to Goliath, Lord, would you, would you begin to walk all of us through opportunities where you can begin to grow our faith, that you begin to prove your faithfulness and your trust, that, that you begin to strengthen the reality of our lives, that, that you would prove yourself over and over and over in such a way that regardless of what is swirling on around us and regardless of what is happening, we could look at you and just say, we trust you. And even though it seems impossible and even though it makes no sense, we are putting our hope in our God. And though he may slay me, I will still hope in him. Lord, would you turn this world upside down all over again? Or as Isaiah said, oh, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake, as in the days of old and the generations of long ago. 
Lord, you have proved yourself in the past, and we ask that you would prove yourself once again in the present day. Use our lives as demonstrations of faith of those who believe of what it means to be a Christian. Lord, thank you that you are faithful. We love you. Give you the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. No, I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.